The following is a conversation with Dr. Subhash Kak. Dr. Kak is an Indian-American computer scientist, theoretical physicist, historian, indologist, Vedic scholar, linguist, philosopher, and poet. Dr. Kak's scientific research has spanned the fields of information theory, cryptography, neural networks, quantum information, and theoretical physics. He is one of the pioneers of quantum learning. He coined the term quantum neural computing, which is a theory of consciousness that is partly classical and partly quantum. He has authored and co-authored at least 20 books on a variety of topics. In 2019, Dr. Kak was awarded the Padma Shri, which is India's fourth highest civilian award for his immense contributions in multiple areas of expertise. The following conversation was recorded on February 7, 2022. Dr. Subhash Kak, welcome back to the channel and thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. It's great to have you back. Thank you, Abhijit. Really delighted to be discussing a very interesting uh, scientific problem of our times. Indeed. So, you know, this channel that I'm running, I mean, which which has evolved over time. So the, the interesting thing about this channel is that the audience has an interesting demographic. Over 50% of my audience, my viewers are below the age of 25. And when I do these live interactions with them, it's all teenagers, you know, 12 year olds and 15 year olds, students who come in and ask me questions. And I'm getting a lot of questions about computer science, AI, uh, quantum computing, consciousness, and all that. And I've been answering the questions, but I thought, why not bring in one of the experts, one of the pioneers in this field? And I myself uh, am fascinated in, by this field. So I will also be able to gain some really new knowledge from you. So that's the reason why I called you. And once again, thank you for doing that. Wonderful, really, yeah. Right. So let's. Uh, uh, so every student who takes up science initially has a number of options. If you're good at math, you can take up physics or engineering or computer science, pure mathematics, even economics, if you want. So you, sir, must have also have had these choices, and you must also have considered several options. So why did you choose computer science? What was the initial journey like that culminated in you deciding to become a computer scientist? Well, uh, my um, journey had a lot of zigzags. I really wanted to be a writer, but my mother said, no way, um, how are you going to support yourself? And so she packed me off to an engineering college. And then after my, my brother was doing his PhD, uh, he had also done his engineering. So I said, well, I should do uh, what he's doing. Uh, so I went off to do my PhD at IIT Delhi. And uh, the professor worked on information theory so i started working on information and then um, the university or iit asked me to stay on as a faculty and uh, information the question that came to me is that well you have uh, quantum mechanics which is the underlying um, theory of uh, matter and reality so how does information come in there so i was reading a lot of stuff and I also went to Imperial College for a year and met with some of the you know, leading people uh, working in physics at that time. Although my base department was electrical engineering at IIT Delhi. And uh, so I think I was the very first person to look at the question of uncertainty and information because you have the fundamental uncertainty principle. So I said, is it possible that information is conserved and you have uncertainty because you are getting some additional information in the quantum description. And these are 
uh, you know, uh, attributes which are associated only with quantum systems or quantum objects, which are not associated with classical objects. So I wrote a couple of papers in the mid-70s, which I believe were the very first ones by anybody asking this question of, is information conserved? And since we go into the micro states of uh, quantum mechanics and uh, you have uncertainty, so that is balanced off by additional information. So this is something that remained in the back of my mind. And I kept on uh, doing it from time to time. And then um, in the 1980s, in 1982, uh, Richard Feynman wrote a paper in International Journal of Theoretical Physics where he suggested that one way to study physical systems would be to emulate them on a quantum computer. Uh, and, uh, and then the subject took off. And I returned back to it. I was working on cryptography then. I was uh, in the US, um, I changed, uh, moved to a university in the US, and I was working on cryptography, security, and the mathematics associated with that. And I was also working at that time on, um, uh, on, on uh, through cryptography and AI, I was also working on Indian sciences, you know, Panini's grammar, and the whole thing about how much of sciences did Indians know. And um, the standard um, history books had material which didn't make any sense, uh, no sense at all. For example, <clears throat> it said India didn't even have writing, and writing came only about 250 BC. But uh, here you had this grammar which is so uh, elaborate and complex that uh, it's all <clears throat> tied together, you know, 4,000 rules. So, how did this guy, Panani, uh, put it all together was he making some symbols or well symbols means writing how was he doing it was it all in memory memory doesn't work that deep so all of these questions took me there so i was so many things converged in the 90s then i was doing ai i was doing uh, vedic sciences or archaeoastronomy and then i returned back to quantum information and I wrote many papers uh, once again, because now by that time, the subject had really become quite hot. And I also uh, came up with a new protocol for cryptography, um, and uh, which is a true um, quantum communication protocol, not just a way of exchanging uh, certain uh, information um, uh, classically, uh, well, through qubits. And a qubit is a quantum state, which is a uh, superposition of, um, you know, zero and one. One can look at it that way, not just a zero or a one. So all this came together. And, and so it's not that uh, I was looking for CS, doing CS by itself. I've been driven more by uh, theory or theoretical questions related to what is information. And uh, then as a practical person, because, you know, you have your mother saying, hey, um, how are you going to make money? Or then your wife tells you, hey, um, uh, if you're just doing theory, uh, might you lose your job? Are you afraid of that? So I was also from time to time <laughs> doing the uh, other stuff, the mathematical stuff that was required or expected of me um, by way of, you know, coming up with new protocols and this and that. 
Right. It's quite a journey. Uh, so let's talk about computer science. So today we live in a world that's suffused <clears throat> with computers. Computers are everywhere. They're right. central to our lives. So, which is why computer science is one of the most important fields of research and development today. So, could you explain concisely what is computer science and what do computer scientists do? Well, um, there are two kinds of computer scientists. Those who work on algorithms, um, namely rules which make it possible to, to do computation in a systematic way. And there are those who look at implementation, you know, hardware. Uh, how do you uh, map your algorithm uh, into a machine where all this will be done very rapidly? So you have people from uh, electronics uh, who contribute to that. Now, uh, basically, um, what is done um, in implementation, there is another uh, very interesting aspect, which is a tie up with uh, this larger question of uh, what I had been doing earlier, namely, Indian studies or you know Indian sciences, which is <clears throat> that uh, uh, hardware for implementation. You know you have you have the algorithm, so then you uh, map it into gates, logic gates, which uh, which uh, take the computation forward. Uh, and um, I must also say that according to uh, computer scientists and according to um, people who work in this general area, uh, Panini's Sanskrit grammar itself is like a computer program. So a computer program is one which will then let you get different solutions for different problems. You know, prior to this, of course, you have um, algorithms like uh, uh, long division. You want to divide one number by another. And there is a certain procedure. And you have to uh, then go through that procedure and you'll uh, get your answer. Or you want to do, say, uh, the square root of a number. And there is a certain procedure. We know we've done that in school. Uh, you add two zeros and then you go down, you know, as you go from one step to another. So the uh, task in computer science is to write your... Uh, uh, procedure in such a such a way so that when it's mapped into uh, the into the flow of information uh, with uh, different logic gates put together, then uh, then you don't have to uh, change the hardware. You just change the input, then you'll get the corresponding output, and that makes for all the difference because now. Uh, once you have the hardware in place, which is the computer in place, you can do all kinds of problems. You then don't have to know what the uh, procedure is. While in the olden times of pre-computers, uh, pre you had to go through the procedure or the implementation on a page of paper each time. So you have to know what the procedure was. Everybody had to know. If you were doing mathematics, you had to know how the algorithm worked. Now you don't have to know it. You just plug in your input and you get your output. Now, the interesting thing here is that, and this is a tie up with uh, Indian sciences, uh, that uh, uh, in the 1970s, well, 60s, people who do work on uh, mathematical logic uh, or multi-valued multi logic, they discovered that three-valued logic is superior to binary logic. So in the 1970s, uh, there were some efforts in Russia and in the US as well to create hardware logic gates, which were three-valued, not two-valued. 
two-valued is binary logic, right? Now, everything is binary. And uh, that would have been more efficient than uh, binary computers. But then uh, after some point, that was abandoned because the underlying hardware technology uh, was already established for binary com computations. But now it has uh, had very tremendous implications because somehow um, physicists have assumed, even physicists, physicists like Wheeler, you know, who was uh, the professor for Richard Feynman uh, at Princeton University, they have implicitly assumed that binary is optimal. So people talk about uh, Wheeler's famous statement, it from bit, it meaning physical universe from bit, that binary information is fundamental. Right? But that's not true. There is a mathematical theorem. It says that 3 is superior to 2. And, uh, and so uh, uh, the interesting thing there, here is that Indian sciences have somehow implicitly assumed that 3 is superior. That's why the Vedas themselves are called Trayvidya, triple knowledge. You know, you have the Gayatri Mantra. You speak of three states, you know, the subject, the intervening space and the object that is in grammar but uh, in physical reality you have the earth the atmosphere and the sun right and I, i've done a lot of work you know my a lot of my research in uh, astronomy and my discovery of the astronomical code of the rig veda was a takeoff on our, on all of this and more recently and this might interest some of you some of your uh, viewers um, I uh, discovered, um, and I published mathematical papers on this, that um, three is, of course, when you look at integers, three-valued logic is uh, superior. It is optimal. You know, it's better than two-valued logic. Um, and uh, Indian medicine, Ayurveda, is based on three, uh, three states, while allopathy is based on two states, and it leaves out the mind which is why you, know, you have the huge medical crisis right now. Uh, you have the placebo effect, 30 to 40% of the people get well just by themselves, just if they were to imagine or do exercises or do this or take sugar pills, right? Because allopathy has no place for the mind while um, Ayurveda does. But Indians don't know it or Indian Ayurvedic practitioners also know this, don't know this fact that three is superior to two. Now, more recently in the last two years, I've, run a, I've done a whole series of papers arguing that, well, and, and it's a mathematical theorem, that three is not optimal if you allow all real numbers. What is optimal is E. So space itself should be E-dimensional. Reality is E-dimensional. And doing this, you can even show that gravitation is a consequence of E-dimensionality. And in fact, one of my more recent papers, which is going to come out, is that the genetic code itself is E-dimensional. So a lot of interesting stuff, which have very interesting uh, links with uh, the way the rishis thought. Because when you go to Vaisheshik Sutra, for example, uh, Kanada, the great uh, rishi, does speak of um, two aspects of reality. One is the physical reality, which is governed totally by laws. Rhythm, rhythm meaning laws, right? So Indians assumed that the Vedic system assumes that there are laws. And uh, these laws are based on uh, dravya, substance, uh, guna, the properties of these substances, and karman, which is the motion of these things. So motion and 
characteristics and substances should be all to determine properties of more and more complex systems. This is a very modern statement. But it also states that when the observer interacts with the physical system, then the nature of that interaction decides what you're going to see, which is totally consistent with quantum mechanics. And it speaks of uh, samanya, which is universal. There are certain things that you will get out of that interaction, which will be universal. And vishesha, which is particular. In fact, that's why the whole theory is called vaisheshika, because we get special or unique uh, insights depending upon which individual is interacting with the universe or in what manner. And the third is Samavaya, which is where the interface of our consciousness or our measuring apparatus takes place with the physical system. So, so this, this is very beautiful. Uh, and, uh, and so we have all these interesting uh, linkages uh, which, in my view, for a variety of reasons, uh, are going to inform um, in the coming years, in a better way, what reality is. Right. So today's computer architecture, hardware, etc., it's all based on two-valued logic, right? That's right. what. That's how it is today. So how do we make the shift to three-valued logic? Is, is there any such movement in progress or any such initiative? Well, as I told you, 70s uh, people worked on it. There were certain projects. Mm -hmm. But uh, the advantage to go from 2 to 3 is only about 4 or 5%. And it's probably not worth it because you have uh, integrated circuits, the whole you know, foundries, the, the, the huge um, uh, investments on the whole history of the evolution of uh, ICs. So I don't think that's going to happen. So I don't think it's important from the perspective of hardware uh, now, but I think it is important from the perspective of, let's say, um, application of computers. One of the big things that is happening in application of computers is big data. You know, you have huge amounts of data right now because of uh, the internet. Uh, you have medical data or you have geographical data. And let's just talk about the medical data. You have doctors uh, or hospitals. They are aggregating all this data, and it's going somewhere. And they are trying to find out, well, uh, what would be the best um, way to deal with a disease or what we have been doing in the past? Is that really the right thing to do? And so on. Let's look at the pandemic, right? Uh, our COVID-19. And there's so much of confusion, right, uh, about uh, what should be done. Why is it that in Africa and Asia, the mortality rate is one twentieth or one tenth or even less than that of the U.S., where U.S. has they invested huge amount of money. About twenty percent of the GDP is uh, devoted to health. So, what is really happening? Maybe what is happening is that all this analysis is uh, straight jacketed into binaries, so they are missing out on something. And if they were to go beyond binary and use three-valued logic, then maybe something else will come out and that will help them uh, go beyond. And this may also be looked at from another perspective, which ties up with the topic of uh, our your, your podcast today, which is quantum reality. See, reality ultimately is quantum mechanical. So we are also quantum mechanical in some sense, not 
physically, because of all the aggregation, you can look at it as a classical machine at many levels, which is why uh, neuroscientists or people who do anatomy, uh, they look at uh, human body as a machine. But underlying that is a, is a quantum mechanical reality. Now, this quantum mechanical reality is at two different levels. One is, uh, uh, you know, you look at cells and further deep uh, this structure um, of uh, matter itself, which is quantum mechanical. So maybe in some sense uh, that has uh, and, uh, and that has implications. In fact, uh, my, my, my friend um, uh, Stuart Hameroff has uh, written a lot of stuff together with uh, Roger Penrose on the microtubules itself viewed in a quantum mechanical sense, even though I think that theory doesn't really hold together. But people are uh, looking at it from that perspective. The other perspective is more subtle, and almost no one has worked on it. And that is that, you know, mind is not physical. Certainly, consciousness is not physical. And the Vedic Rishis knew it. You look at Mundaka Upanishads. They say you have Apara Vidya and Para Vidya. Apara Vidya is physical or conceptual because what is conceptual is abstractions from the physical. But Para is not physical. Chetana or consciousness is not physical. Okay. So uh, now, of course, mind has a mechanical aspect. And in the, in our, in, in the Indian tradition, it's called Antahakaran, the inner instrument. But it's uh, operating on a reality which is not classical. Uh, beyond classical is quantum mechanical. And maybe that's what medicine is missing out. That is what big data is missing out. Maybe what they need to do, and this is a different way of using quantum computation, what they need to do is to look at this big data and see whether viewing it from a quantum mechanical perspective will provide insights which, uh, are, which are elusive otherwise. And I personally think that there may be something out there. So, uh, so how do, in what way do you regard consciousness? So, we, when we talk about consciousness, do we have a definition of consciousness from a physics perspective, information theory perspective, biochemistry perspective, or is consciousness something? If we if we look at it from the perspective of just pure science, which is all about the physical universe, observable objects, and measurable quantities, is consciousness even a thing from that perspective, or is it? Something we have to look beyond science. Well, uh, uh, scientists from many different fields, whether you look at it uh, from a perspective of computer science, well, the brain is a machine and the brain has consciousness, whatever its actual scientific definition might be, while a computer doesn't have consciousness, right? Uh, it is that division. Intuitively, we know what is conscious and what's not conscious, although that can be problematic. We could have a robot. Uh, which is uh, made like a human being. And there are some people who are doing it, uh, some companies, you know, because people are so lonely in the West. So they want uh, these toys who look like uh, humans. Like um, you don't have a girlfriend, so you get a toy girlfriend or whatever. <laughs> if they are very sophisticated, then they might, uh, they might uh, actually uh, fool you. Or at least that's what uh, Alan Turing suggested, that if you were to question... A computer uh, in all different ways, and you're not able to tell whether that there is a human being behind that computer, and it's able to respond to all the subtleties 
of your questions, then um, you can take, you can then assume that the computer is in some say, some sense conscious, right? But I don't think any computer will actually pass that test. Although, you know, uh, opinion is divided very greatly. In fact, as part uh, four or five years ago of a uh, big project uh, in the US um, organized by DARPA and run through SRI, Stanford Research Institute. They spent a lot of money on it. And what they did was, I think, 11 or 12 week-long conferences in which, uh, to which they invited uh, some selected people, some leading physicists and computer scientists, a few philosophers, and there were a lot of uh, program managers from Washington um, and computer scientists as well. And the question that was given to them was, will computers of the future at some point in the future become conscious? Not necessarily five years or 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, maybe 1,000 years. And uh, at one of those meetings, as one of the people who was invited, there were about 30 odd people. One of the meetings, and in fact, this particular meeting took place in Cambridge, UK, a week long. You know, we used to assemble in the morning. People would make different presentations in their particular areas, and there'd be questions and discussions and so on. So one of those days, there was a uh, poll uh, which was taken, and um, uh, and uh, about 50% of the people said, yes, computers will eventually become conscious. And these were computer science people. These were even some philosophers and some other people. Um, I was not one of those. The other 50% uh, where those, uh, many of them, uh, were, some of them were computer scientists also, uh, and uh, there were some who were quantum uh, me mechanics theory knowing people. So these people uh, felt that computers will never become conscious. Now, uh, I talked to one of the guys, in fact, this guy was a Dutchman, uh, well-known um, uh, CS person. So I said, why did you say that computers will become conscious? The other, you know, after the meeting was over, he says, look, I personally believe in the Buddhist framework to reality. And if there is shunyata, if there's nothingness, and out of nothingness, minds have evolved, then clearly, if we were to extend that logic out of nothingness of mathematics, right? Mathematics is only logic. Um, um, so out of that, computers should evolve. Now, the, the, the rest of them are or somebody were to ask me, I would say, well, this is um, not, uh, this is, this doesn't hang together. And this, these discussions have also taken place in India for, for a long time. You know, you had the Buddhists, the Vijnanvadis um, who believe that minds are transient. And on the other hand, you had Vedantins. And there's some wonderful debates that took place, uh, for example, in Kashmir in the 8th and 9th and 10th century. You had people like uh, Utpal Dev and Abhinav Gupta. And what they said was, mind, the contents of mind are transient. And so my mind now, uh, because one aspect of mind is memory. You know, memory, ahankar, uh, chitta and ahankar, right? These are two aspects. Uh, memory, bank and ahankar, ego. Uh, so we have memories, uh, but we, uh, and these memories are ch changing. They're not as if they are out there in a fixed way because each time we ruminate or we go back to our memories our memories change all right so if we have changed physically you have changed our brains have changed 
then what is it which holds me now to be the same person as was, say, 20 years ago? And to this, the Vedantists came up with the answer that there is something which holds together, which is one consciousness. And all of reality has one consciousness. And that in Kashmir was given the name Shiva because it is a part of that. Not it was a, not a Kashmiri tradition. It goes back to the Vedas itself. So that tradition, which in um, the Vedas is Rudra, for example, and Shiva later, as one uh, reality, which is consciousness. So consciousness is just one thing. But it gets experienced by us through our awareness. And there are consciousness states. And we are asleep, for example. And once again, the Upanishads speak of this all, that there is the sleeping state, there's the dreaming state, right? And, uh, and then there is the no dreaming state. There are, there are different states which they talk about. So we are not conscious when we are dreaming. Uh, well, when we are not dreaming. When we are dreaming, we are in a different state of consciousness. And is it uh, all imagined? Or is there something deeper about it? And people in the West have also thought about it. Uh, for example, uh, Freud's interpretation of dreams, right? Um, but that's that's much more superficial in, in many ways, uh, Freud's stuff. Uh, because truly, having looked at many of these things from different perspectives, uh, the depth that we have from our Indian tradition is absolutely incredible. Because right in the Upanishads itself, you know, which is 2,500 years or 3,000 years ago, we have a description of this at such a sophisticated, in, in such a sophisticated manner that they are still relevant at this point. No other such, uh, you know, thinking traditions are relevant when um, physical sciences and computational sciences or medical sciences, at least in terms of description of the body or description of different organisms have made fantastic uh, advances in the last 200 years, right? But still, for inspiration and for the overarching understanding, we must go early to the masters who did yoga and tantra, which where they were looking at the very architecture of the mind, of the experience, um, experiencing self in the inner space. So according, um, I've, I've uh, looked at some of these architectures. It, uh, if I recall correctly, there are like five different uh, components of the self. Uh, I remember seeing one of your earlier papers in which you had gone into this. Uh, so could you elaborate on that? What is this yeah, internal uh, architecture of the mind? Yeah, there, well, it depends upon which way you're looking at it. In, the, the, mm -hmm. in Vedanta, the idea is that, uh, you know, you're the physical body. So we are the physical body. There are five koshas, and these koshas are called Annamaya kosha, which is the physical body. Annamaya, because the food, etc., is what nourishes it. Annamaya kosha. Then you have uh, different forces or currents inside the body, right? Uh, and this is called the pranamaya kosha. You have the different breaths and electrical signals and this and that. So Annamaya kosha is the gross body. Within it is the pranamaya kosha because the gross, when a person is dead, the gross body, annamaya kosha is still there, but the pranas have gone. So within the annamaya kosha is pranamaya kosha. And within the pranamaya kosha is manomaya kosha. 
which is the mind, right? Because you could have a body in coma um, uh, and the mind is gone. So, so then you have only these two levels. So Annamaya Kosha, Pranamaya Kosha, Manomaya Kosha, Vijnanamaya Kosha, and then Anandamaya Kosha. And beyond these koshas is the Atman. So all of these things can be mechanized in some sense, but the Atman cannot. Now, the Buddhists also accept these five, but for a long time, at least, you know, Buddhism is kind of a split thing. And it, it's an interesting topic to investigate because in his own, in his own life, the Buddha never answered the question. They said, people used to ask him, is there an Atman? And he would say, why are you talking about it? He would change the subject. But on his deathbed, and this is all described in great details in the Maha Nirvana Sutra, Mahapari Nirvana Sutra, when he was dying and his disciples came to him and one of them was called a fellow called Chunda, and they were crying. They said, now you, you are our ma, my bab." What's going to happen to us once you die, right? So then he says that, look, I did tell, didn't answer this question. Um, and in fact, uh, an analogy that had been drawn was that there's a house and there's a person in it. The person is like the mind. When the house burns down, then the mind is also gone, right? Because there is nothing else. But what if the person comes out before the fire takes place, right? That's the Atman. So... The Buddha said, look, I didn't answer the question because you were too set in your superficial understanding of whatever you're doing, your ritual and so on and so forth. Now that I'm dying, let me tell you that indeed there is something which survives the body. And uh, I think it's called, they, they use some word, Buddha Garbha or something, etc., etc. So he did acknowledge the idea of Atman. And, and now... The academic Buddhologists of the last 200 years, you know, this whole European control of the East, uh, control of India and control of all the stuff that's come out of India, uh, they've made this as, as if it's a line which divides Hinduism and Buddhism. And that's totally false. Uh, you know, the great um, scholar uh, Ananda Kumaraswamy in his book, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, which is on the internet, anybody can read it. He says that when you look at Hinduism and Buddhism superficially, you might think they are different, but the deeper you go, you realize that they are identical. And even the Buddhists speak of uh, the Akalic Dhamma or Akalic Dharma, like Sanatan Dharma, which is beyond time. And, uh, you know, uh, I discovered it only recently and I've written on it. Uh, one of the most uh, uh, popular um, chants uh, in uh, temples, uh, Buddhist temples all across East Asia, China, Vietnam, Korea, Japan, is a Sanskrit chant, which is chanted in Sanskrit even now. And it's called Nilakanta Dharani, in which Avalokiteshvara, which is the Bodhisattva, you know, the imagined perfect Bodhisattva, uh, uh, who uh, Avalokiteshvara is a representation of Avaloka, Ava meaning downward, like avatar, you know, uh, downward. Loka means to look. Look and loka are the same word. Uh, and the way you are looking creates a new reality, different lokas, right? Avalokiteshvara. 
the one who is looking down um, in compassion. So in this uh, Nilakantha Dharani, Avalokiteshvara is worshipping Nilakantha, namely, namely Shiva. He says, you who swallowed halahal poison to save the universe, you are the exemplar of, of uh, compassion. Right? So the Buddhists themselves worship Shiva, Nilakantha. As well as in this particular uh, Nilakantha Dharani, you'll discover that uh, they also worship uh, uh, Narasimha, you know, Vishnu in the form of Narasimha. Uh, so, uh, you know, this, this is a, another most fascinating subject of the bizarre manner in which uh, Indology and study of India and study of Buddhism uh, has emerged in the last 200 years with the academic scholars um, in many ways uh, leading people astray like um, this uh, computer scientist uh, at the DARPA conference on the Stanford Research Institute conferences that I was a part of who was a Buddhist. In fact, about half or 60% of all these Western scholars, I was the only Indian one, all these Western leading scholars were Buddhist in their personal life in this <laughs> meeting. Uh, of course, they don't stand up and say, hey, I'm a Buddhist. But then when you chat with them, you're having dinner and they say, yeah, you know, I do this Buddhism, etc. And the others were into Sanatana Dharma. They, maybe there were one or two who didn't have any other views. So as far as at the deepest level, you have either Vedanta or you have Buddhism. Buddhism, if you want to keep, you don't want to jump too far. And it's very complicated. You know, Vedanta is so subtle. It's like quantum mechanics, because we are, we're actually discussing quantum mechanics. And as we know, uh, the, the creator of quantum mechanics itself, Schrodinger, he was a Vedantin. And Vedanta is very subtle because it brings in both consciousness and materiality at the same time as two aspects of reality. Buddhism, or let, let's call it fundamental Buddhism, which denies Atman, right? Because that's really not true. As I mentioned, you read Mahapari Nirvana Sutra and Buddhist Buddha eventually did accept the Atman. But the, the, uh, the let's say, militant Buddhists who want to believe that there's no Atman, uh, uh, for that is less of a leap for the Westerner. Vedanta is a greater leap. Of course, that leap has been made by the creators of quantum mechanics and by some of the uh, deepest thinkers in the West have uh, made that leap. Uh, but contrary-wise, India is under the grips of, uh, of classical theorists. You know, Marxism, materialism is based on classical ex expression of reality, that we are nothing but material bodies, and then there is hierarchy. And we must smash that hierarchy, right? Basically, that's what Marxism is. It's very naive. And um, it doesn't really go to the very heart of reality. But so many things come together. So it's it's quite curious that uh, Buddhist scholars, even from Eastern Asia, from Thailand, etc., they tend to disregard the last discourse of the Buddha, the Mahapari Nirvan Sutra, in which it's quite clearly laid out that he was certainly... Uh, he did accept the existence of the Atma. So I'm wondering why is it so? I can understand the Western Indologists and Buddhologists who would do that. But why do even the Eastern ones do that? Isn't that curious, strange? Why, why does that happen? 
Well, I think uh, it, it has many different um, reasons. Uh, first of all, India, India's intellectual life has been smashed. Yeah. Uh, 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 who uh, even Anand Kumaraswamy, who is half English, as you know, he was Sri Lankan. His mother was um, uh, English. He's he's wonderful. He's got great insight. Or Aurobindo. Anand Kumaraswamy says it's not just the Western intelligence, but also their Indian followers, because we've been separated from their deeper understanding. We have held on to a superficial understanding of what India is or what Buddha is or Buddhism is. And this, the West has had such a dominating influence over all of Asia that when Asia tried to mold itself in the shape of what Europe was asking it to become. You know, this is Western scholars, not all of them, because there's some of them who are fantastic, who did get it. Even now, there are some who get it. But in academia, and many of them are not in academia, in ac academia is all about control, as you are discovering now in the West, in America. You know, you have this bizarre situation with wokeism and people <laughs> saying even mathematics is race, racist, you know. This, <laughs> and people who have who've studied, done degrees in logic are saying these things. So it's very easy uh, quanti counterintuitively. It's very easy for educated people to become totally disoriented from reality. Uh, and uh, uh, because logic itself doesn't take you to deepest meaning. It's not because logic is at the, operate, uh, at the level of the manomaya kosha. Manomaya kosha is where you're using logic, right? And uh, and what does it give you? It give you it gives you some signs, which is the vijnanamaya kosha, right? And then it gives you pleasure because you get promotion, you know, ananda. Then you're drinking whiskey. If that's what you like to do. Uh, that that gives you at least not the deepest ananda, ananda, but at least some kind of ananda. But that doesn't give you understanding. For understanding, you have to be connected to the atman. And there is this fantastic, beautiful theory um, of aesthetics, which um, uh, which was created by Ananda Vardhan and Abhinav Gupta, uh, called the Dhvani theory. You know, we have to go to the Dhvani behind the resonance, not Dhvani in terms of sound, the resonance behind whatever you're seeing, whatever you're observing, the dance or the painting or uh, the piece of art or science itself because science can be totally mechanical you know there were people who were doing uh, led just by mathematics they did string theory for 20 or 30 years the smartest people in the west did string theory for 30 years then they realized that it has 10 to the power 500 solutions that it's doesn't give you any predictive power and a lot of logic a lot of stuff that people do uh, is um, barren because it doesn't have the breath of the eternal, as somebody has used. There's a translation of the Upanishads by Manchester and Swami Prabhavanand, and they called it the breath of the eternal. And that's the Atman. So without the Atman, it's nothing. Then it's only cleverness. And cleverness can be fine when you look at it first time. Then it loses all power. So these mechanical dolls are, dolls are fine. First time you see them, 
and then you, you won't even observe them. Right. So you said that there is just one consciousness and it uh, kind of manifests itself in all of us individually. So is that the same as, uh, what, what do they call it, panpsychism? Panpsychism kind of says that every particle, every object has a certain degree of consciousness. And then there is cosmopsychism, which says that the entire universe is a conscious entity. So is this in synchronicity in tune with the Vedantic view or is it a more superficial way of looking at things? Panpsychism is superficial. You know, what they're trying to do and a lot of uh, uh, Western scholars, you know, they're, they're terrified of going all the way to Vedanta. People like Schrodinger did, or even Heisenberg later on, they did recognize that, yeah, this is it. Or the standard interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is adhered to by most people, not everybody, is the orthodox Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, where consciousness and physical reality are two, and, and material, material, materiality, consciousness and materiality are two aspects of the same thing, like two sides of the coin. You can't separate one from the other, and you cannot derive one from the other, right? Now, which is totally consistent with Vedanta. This is what Vedanta says, right? You have para and apara. To everything, there's para and apara. Now, since the problem I tell you is this, since we have very few interlocutors for Vedanta, Indians don't know it. In, know who amongst the physicists in India? Maybe four or five or six or seven. Maybe people like George Sudarshan. You know, he was a great physicist who passed He's away. gone, unfortunately. Yeah. But most Indian physicists, because they don't have that Atma Vishwas, their minds are colonized. Not just physicists. Let's not say that they are the fall guys. Everybody, you look at people in politics and arts and history, any subject, they are still colonized. Uh, we are still trying to uh, see... What will the guy in London or New York say uh, if we stand up and see, say things the way we see them, right? So uh, the problem is that we don't have interlocutors. So people in East Asia and the temples, once you talk to them, they, they do get it. Or even uh, the, the great uh, Vietnamese um, uh, Buddhist uh, uh, person, uh, not, not, not whatever his name was, who died just uh, who died recently yeah. last week, right? Yes. I, I forget his name. He he did admit he, in his talks, he would say, yeah, there is a uh, reality, a transcending reality. The greatest, or even Dalai Lama acknowledges that as far as I understand it. So people, they, the leaders do recognize it at the deepest level or in you know, a Zen master. But at the superficial level, when it when it's the matter of control. Uh, it's because uh, there it's a question of, well, we control this. And the, the, the guys who speak for Vedanta, for Sanatana Dharma, have no agency left, you know, are accepting a few matas in the South, right? Where are they? Where is the agency? Uh, I was once, um, I must tell you this. Um, I was in Delhi about 20 years ago, and um, there was a, a, a leader of a temple. Um, my mother used to go to that temple, and he knew that uh, I was into some of these things. He says, hey, Subhash, why don't you come with me? We are going to um, uh, Birla Mandir. There is a big uh, conference, and some of India's leading um, 
people of Hinduism are there and you can also give a talk. So I went there and then I was talking to uh, one of the Shankaracharyas who was there, uh, who had come there. I think this was the one from, uh, from Dwarka. And he said, can you believe it? Even to spend 25 rupees, I have to get permission from the IAS officer who's assigned to me. They have no agency in any sense, right? Uh, so, uh, of course, there's some great matas by, you know, matadishas in the South because they have their, you also need physical, you know, independence. Uh, and, and of course, there are, there are, there are great uh, sadhus by themselves in Rishikesh and people are streaming from all over the world, Rishikesh and everywhere in the South as well. But I'm talking of um, organized Hinduism. Organized Hinduism is in shambles. Um, the, the temples were also centers of learning, but they're not allowed to be centers of learning now. All that they're allowed to be now at these uh, great uh, government-controlled temples in India is that you can go provide some comfort. You know, people and people do also need that. So you are in a pilgrimage, you want to go to Tirupati or this temple or that temple. You go and you pay, I believe they, the fee has been hiked to 11,000 rupees or something like that by the new Andhra uh, government. So you pay your money and you're, you're in a huge queue and you're pushed and you see the image for two seconds or five seconds, you're pushed out. But that's not what Hinduism is. I mean, that, I'm not decrying that. People do need comfort as well. Uh, but Hinduism is, Sanatana Dharma is, an, is, is reality, is, a, is an understanding of reality. And it's an understanding of reality which is very subtle, at least as far as I think my own take on it is. And this take is, you know, supported by people who created quantum mechanics, for example. You know, you read Schrodinger. He says, yes. Um, he says the idea of superposition, which is one of the two fundamental ideas of quantum mechanics, came to him from the Upanishadic Mahavakya, I am Atma Brahma, that this Atman is the entire cosmos. So this Atman, which is as small as the small smallest that can be, as in Ishavasi Upanishad, is a superposition of all possibilities. right? And then the mind, which is the Manas, is Manas is classical. The Manas is just an image that is dropped, so to speak, or projected by the Atman on the neural hardware of the brain. So it is an image. So that is classical, right? And and we haven't, you know, it, sometimes one, one says, what have we done after 1947? Before 1947, we had great uh, scientists or world leaders, you know, the Boses, certainly Vivekananda and many others, Saha and many others, Ramanujan. After that, we completely shut out all this tradition of our own scientific knowledge in the name that, by, by saying that, you know, we just created a bucket and we said, we've got to get rid of super, superstitions, right? And now uh, we didn't make, okay, there were certain superstitions. We should get rid of it, right? We should only hold on to what is beautiful, what is bright and shiny and so on. But we threw everything out, everything out. And all that we then connected to was uh, the curricula, uh, uh, which is 
taught in, in the West, which is fine. And the West is doing a great job. They are looking at reality from their Eurocentric view or Euro-American centric view. And they're also trying to learn. You know, I travel to universities, colleges, or even churches, and they want to know what this is. But in India, there is a, there's complete silence. Now that silence is being lifted, this darkness is being lifted only now by people like you and others, you know, through social media and all that, but not the mainstream. And therefore, to go back to your question, we don't have interlocutors uh, within the hierarchy, excepting those who are self-taught, like yoga teachers. You go to any European country and you, these are people who come from villages or so on, and they don't necessarily know English. You don't even have to know English. You have to have, you know, to, you have to know, uh, have conviction and sincerity. And people see through whatever language you might use and determine whether you have that. And so you have these people who are changing the West and people want to go and be connected to, the, to yoga and they are trying to do it for themselves. They're going back to their own ancient um, traditions of knowledge, you know, in, uh, for example, in Lithuania, they, this is, uh, they call it Romua, you know, that the religion, and these are all Sanskritic, they have Sanskritic connections, as, as, as you know. So, so in other words, uh, in East Asia, if we had better interlocutors, and we spoke to them that here, you're not saying that you are, is, you know, that this is all dharmic knowledge, or dharma in the sense, not necessarily of a specific social organization. Um, and there can be different social organizations. This is knowledge of reality at the deepest level. And this is what it is. And we have discussions. And, and then they would connect to a lot of them. In fact, one of the translators of uh, uh, Mahapari Nirvan Sutra in England, he told me, he sent me an email. He says, do you know that many Buddhist academics don't want to know about this? They just don't want to talk about it because there is a question of control. They that their whole system empire collapses. If, if they highlight Mahapari Nirvan Sutra, then they would people would say, "Well, but then doesn't it really mean, as Ananda Kumaraswamy said, that there is no difference at the deepest level between Buddhism and Sanatan Dharma, or Buddhism is a part of Sanatan Dharma?" This is what people are scared of. It, it's a part. It's like Avesta that that um, uh, Avestan language is like late Vedic language, and therefore Iranian language can be viewed, and the later Iranian languages can be viewed as Prakrits, right? And then that will the whole Indo-European apple cart would uh, would would collapse because that would mean that the way they have structured it is really not true. And one of the problems I see is that when we communicate with our brethren in Eastern Asia, we use the English language. The English language is the foundation for everything, even for our own learning. For instance, if an Indian kid wants to learn anything about his or her own culture and traditions, they do it in English. And English is a very, it's a, it's a very superficial and, and crude language compared to something like Sanskrit, which is so nuanced. So is that, in your opinion, one of the problems we are facing? We are deracinated because we have lost touch with our civilizational language. Well, certainly. Oh, absolutely. That's because uh, uh, because uh, we are now only using English. But on the other hand, I must also say that 
all of us in India are still connected to or tethered to Sanskrit because all our languages, whether it's Gujarati or Marathi or Kashmiri or Tamil or Telugu, just you go back one step, all the words are still there. You know, Malayalam has 97% Sanskrit vocabulary, even more than what Hindi has. So uh, if that is the case, what we need to do is not run away from English. English is fine. You know, it's also a language of communication uh, across the world, uh, but also be more vitally connected to uh, our own languages. And then uh, I think basically what we need to do is, first of all, be informed. If our own um, uh, interlocutors see India through uh, the Eurocentric prism, then they don't have much to tell uh, the person in uh, Vietnam, for example, right? Because then they would be emphasizing this thing that, well, their uh, the standard view is Buddha came to cleanse uh, uh, the Sanatan Dharma of the horrible practices that had come in, like yeah. meat, uh, like animal sacrifice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now you know that 99% of people in China or Japan eat meat, or in Korea. In fact, I was once for a week in Korea, and it was impossible. Even at breakfast, they had uh, meat of all kinds. So only the Buddhist monks don't eat meat. So the whole question of meat, etc. And not only that, you go back to uh, which um, Indians, because they don't know the Vedic texts anymore. When you go back to um, uh, the Shatapata Brahmana, for example, where it under description in prose of what the Vedic rites are, you know, it that's a great text for Agni Chayan, for example, on which I've done a lot of work. So there it's stated very clearly that you have an outer ritual, you have uh, the Agni, but the uh, even deeper is an inner ritual. Agni, the Vedas say, is uh, the fire, but it's also speech. So ultimately, all this is an outer drama, outer theater for something which is supposed to be within. And um, uh, the, the various animals, um, uh, you know, uh, Aja or uh, Ashwa and so on, the five different animals of sacrifice are also uh, uh, the different, uh, uh, different, uh, uh, not syllables, uh, different kinds of chants. So, in fact, I, I do mention it. Uh, I don't have the exact reference in my mind right now. My book on uh, Ashwamedha, uh, which uh, was published about 20 years ago, has all that uh, reference, which is not to say that some people did not do uh, actual animal sacrifice. Some people certainly did that, and probably some people still do it in Nepal or maybe in Assam, right? But this was a system of layered understanding that uh, depending upon where you are in your understanding, all, all this ritual falls away at a certain point. And ritual, ultimately, everybody, even modern society has ritual. You know, you have people have breakfast ritual, you have ceremonies of different kind. But the, the, the Vedic ritual was a ritual to connect one to the, the deepest um, aspects of, uh, of our experience. Uh, deepest aspects which connect us to the cosmos. In fact, in, uh, in the Agni Chayan ritual, the the whole Vedi, etc., was a representation of the cosmos, or, or the 
the cycles related to the movements of the sun and the moon and so on and also the inner cosmos you know the the mapping between the pind and the brahmand the whole universe in the cell which is how you go to tantra you know from jyotish to tantra from to sri vidya there you're talking of the inner reality so so indian ritual so these guys don't know all of this they uh, the professors of Hinduism and Buddhism in Indian universities. First of, first of all, Indian universities don't teach Hinduism. Indian <laughs> universities have nothing about India. Maybe Indian history, some history and anthropology. But that's all from the Western lens, which is which is which is totally misinterprets, as we know, even the idea of caste, etc. It totally misinterprets Indian society. So India is still enslaved. Uh, India got political independence 70 years ago, 75 years ago, but not intellectual independence. Indeed, that's the problem. So you spoke about the inner universe and the outer universe. So is there in the Vedantic perspective just one consciousness? Is, this, is it the same consciousness? Is my consciousness the same as that of another person? And is it the same as the universal consciousness? What's the connection? Yes. Um, there is just as you have one single outer sun, um, which if we had a million pots with water, it will shine uh, in each of those pots, right? So this is the image. You have one inner sun, one inner lamp of consciousness, which the same one uh, shines uh, in the minds of everybody. All real, all sentient beings, is the same um, uh, same uh, consciousness. So your consciousness and my consciousness, and also the consciousness of a of a evil person is the same. Then you would say, why? If it's the same, then why is this person doing evil? The person is doing evil because that consciousness is enveloped in darkness. You know, you have. Our mind creates different layers which hide this consciousness. Uh, they, uh, they, um, um, the, the training or the conditioning uh, that we have um, uh, through uh, in, in childhood when we learn, all learning also separates us because learning is like creating. Uh, the blinkers that a horse has, then you can only see that much. You can't see much more. And, and there are certain traditions where uh, questioning is actually discouraged. And if you, are dis if you are told that you are just this, since the mind, since the pind is a, is a, is a superposition of all possibilities within us, uh, not only the devas, devas are, um, are our senses, our uh, cognitive centers, I wrote a book on it uh, 20 odd years ago called The Gods Within. Uh, and you might, uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, I'll be glad to send you a copy. So we have these centers, devas are within us, but also the asuras. Devas and asuras both reside within us. Male and female both reside within us. So when we are born through conditioning and through our biology, then we get one or the other. And sometimes there are some who are, there is some confusion. And with, this explains a lot of what's going on in society, right? But everything is within us. So the way we are raised 
can take us to darkness. So that's why education is so important. And the way we are raised, sanskars are so important. But even sanskars, even the good ways of looking at things also create blinkers. And ultimately, one's got to go beyond all of that, even the sanskars. You know, that's why you, with the greatest sanskars, you can still not get it. You have to ultimately make that leap that takes you beyond what you have been told is it superficially as words, as apara. You know, Mundaka Upanishad even says that the Vedas are also apara vidya, right? Because as language, superficially, they can't tell you. Ultimately, you have to make that leap yourself within you. And But to come back to your question, yes, we are all the same. We have the same consciousness. And it's the same consciousness which illuminates our mind. And this also has this, first of all, it is confusing and people have to get to understand this. And in fact, Schrodinger, in his book, uh, What is Life, which has a tremendous influence, as you know, if you've read Francis Crick, Francis Crick, the guy who discovered the structure of the genetic code, uh, the DNA, structure of DNA, he says uh, in his autobiography, he says it is What is Life by Schrodinger, which made him change his subject from uh, physics to biology, because Schrodinger asked these questions. And in that, uh, Schrodinger does say very clearly, he says, look, there is only one consciousness. He says, in the Western tradition, this is a blasphemy, blasphemous thought that there is only one consciousness. And so it goes totally counter to the Western tradition, all the Western religious traditions or philosophical traditions. But this is the only way to understand it. And that's why there is such antipathy to the Sanatana Dharma tradition within India, for example. Because what has happened in India is, uh, after the British left, uh, it was not freedom obtained in a vital way. So they just left the offices to their successors. And their successors have just kept on going on with the understanding that the Westerners, um, and this is before um, all the revolutionary ideas of quantum mechanics and you know uh, consciousness science had emerged. So we are holding on to the sciences of the yesterday, thought of the yesterday, and we have let ourselves be led by what shall we say? We have let we've let ourselves be led by blind people, whole society for seventy-five years. Even you know some of our best people are not aware it's once you are acculturated in that view then you don't really know that what you don't know you know this famous uh, statement if you don't know if you know not what you if you know not that you know not let's see if you if he knows not that he knows not he knows not he's a fool shun him that is the situation we are in right indeed so we talk about the soul, the Atma. And uh, like you said, every consciousness is actually the same. We all have the same consciousness. So then what is the role of the Atma? If my consciousness is the same as yours and that of other people, then 
what is the atma then what is the relationship between the unique atma of each person and the universal consciousness no the atman itself is consciousness see atman in uh, kashmi kashmi shaivism um, there is this famous slogan shivoham and this is also in uh, upanishads uh, soham saha aham i am he shivoham i am shiva we forget that i am my atman is shiva and shiva is universal consciousness so so soul the word soul is a western concept yes uh, that it's something which goes ultimately to this heaven and then there is some reward and so on or you know virgins or whatever you know bizarre stuff so here uh, everybody is shiva and you know something very interesting uh, it's slight digression Sanatan Dharma is one tradition where all humans, no matter what their background, whether they are black, white, yellow, red, whatever, all humans, male, female, whatever culture, we are all equal. Every human being has the same Atman, same Purush, another word that is used in Sankhya is Purush for Atman, right? Same Atman within each individual. A culture which which celebrates this uh, universality of all of humans and also sentient beings, it even says. And that's why this emphasis on an ecological approach to reality, that you must also embrace animals. Of course, it's not totally un in an idealistic way. It also says that sometimes you may have to kill animals or you are a soldier. Rama and Lakshman, they are in the forest. They're eating animals also. You are... So it's not it's not it's not a kind of a mechanical way of looking at it. Some because it's called matsyanyaya in a in a sea, the big fish must eat the smaller fish to survive. So, but no ahimsa is parama dharma to the extent that you must minimize violence, minimize killing. That's what ahimsa means, right? So a culture, a society, a civilization which emphasizes universality of everybody of all sentient beings and emphasizes an ecological approach and embraces animals not just the cow so what have they done what have they and what have the racists done they have put this slur first of all that uh, hinduism is all hierarchy right which is all made up uh, just as other societies had certain you know first of all there was specialization there were certain people who did this did, did this profession or that profession. And they were forced in Europe, for example. If you're a son of a carpenter, you had to be a carpenter. So there was some of that also because, you know, human, so, so societies converge like this. But uh, societies organize themselves like this. But what the West, in order to continue its domination of India through the sepoys, through the guys in India who been educated sort of mindlessly, who don't understand any of this, who are even more blind, because in the West, you'll find, you know, I've, I find I've got wonderful friends uh, in the West who get it all, and they want to go forward with this. So what they've done in India to dominate Indians is through these slurs, because we embrace the cows. They say you are go-mutra drinkers as a parliamentarian said um, uh, in the parliament just the other day in Delhi, 
right? Or then they say, um, what are the other slurs uh, that are used? That that you know that people are different in terms of their birth, but this, which is not true at all. This is a revolutionary of extraordinary revolutionary um, understanding of reality, of extraordinary um, uh, insight, uh, with capacity to also show show the way beyond the crisis that humanity faces right now, both in the sciences and in social organization, right? You have 100,000 people dying of opioid poisoning uh, every year in the U.S. itself. And there's great despair because, you know, people say if you're only machines, then what's the meaning of life? And let me also give you a... Uh, uh, personal insight, uh, um, personal story. Just last week, uh, we heard I was in Miami and I was to return the next day. We had uh, uh, friends, American friends, who used to um, see whether our 28 year old Australian cockatiel uh, was doing well. So they saw him and he had died that day. He had lived with us for 28 years, almost a world record. And this bird uh, was just like other humans. You know, it had <laughs> did socialization, wanted to talk to us, and that's true of other animals also. This love for animals is also held against people from India just to dominate them and say that you know you are animal loving. You know, you're you're worshiping cows or dogs and animals. So it's like we are letting blind people force their narratives on us. We have embraced it. We haven't even had the agency to change our school books and give a fair representation of what India is. Yes, indeed. And it's interesting that you mentioned animals because uh, according to Vedanta, do animals also have consciousness? Or what I would like to see is are there different kinds of consciousness, different degrees, levels, grades of consciousness? I mean, is a newborn child less conscious than an adult? Is a dog less conscious than a human being? Well, there are two uh, sides to this question. First of all, awareness. You are aware, uh, but with awareness, there could be different levels of consciousness. There, there are different lokas. Lokas is, as I said, the word loka is, uh, is uh, etymologically the same as look in English, right? You look, and when you look, you have a loka. Depending upon how you look, if your looking is governed by or colored very strongly by emotion, then you're not seeing things as clearly as they are. So there are different levels of awareness. And those different levels of awareness connect us to different locals of reality. So you could be operating at a level of awareness which is governed by emotion at a fundamental level. For example, the emotion of hunger, and you are a you are a lion, uh, uh, and so you're very hungry. Maybe the lions are lazy. It's the lionesses who do the hunting, right? So they, they because they have to provide for their cups and so on. So then you must do whatever needs to be done, right? So it's not a question of, you can't look at it as uh, as cruelty. So likewise, if uh, 
your awareness is colored in such a way that you can't see clearly, uh, then um, uh, you can uh, do, you can kill others like terrorists do. Now, these terrorists are also logical people, but they are governed by a certain, people might use the term ideology or a certain emotion. And uh, I'm told that some of these terrorists, um, they, some of them even rape women, right? When they rape women, before that, they do their prayers. And after that, they do their prayers. So it's a part of a certain ritual. So it's governed by a certain emotion and emotional understanding. And in the human mind or in the mind of other animals as well, depending upon how they've been raised, if you've been raised through fear, you can, in fear, you lash out because then you're more the animal side to it, which is governed by emotion. Then you do certain things, right? But if you are raised free, as people know in their own homes, a dog and a cat and a bird can all be huddled together. Same with society. So our consciousness, the, the lamp, the light is the same. But the way that light, this is called Prakash in Kashmir Shaivism, Shiva is also called Prakash or light. And Prakriti is called Vimarsha. So this light falls on Prakriti. And how that Prakriti is organized, how the mind is organized, and there is an element of conditioning or socialization. And it's also true, as I said, of animals, how you socialize them. People have uh, snakes also as pets. Some people have. Of course, I would be too terrified to do so. <laughs> so then um, they, there is a bond that emerges and then uh, that fear goes away. But yes, all human beings, even terrorists, have the same beautiful light. It's only that they have been separated, alienated from that light. And therefore, they're doing asuric or rakshasi things. You know, I think Indian uh, sociology, uh, Puranas, talk of this three tripartite division. You know, three-way is optimal, is, as I said, logically, mathematically. You have a daivik, you know, a compassionate uh, view of reality, although it's slightly more complicated, and I'll come to that in a minute. Then you have asuric, which is more materialistic. So an, an asuric civilization would be one, which would be totally capitalistic, but also it's, uh, um, you know, justice and so on, but only materiality. We could say uh, Lanka was maybe Asuric, and certainly U US is Asuric, but that doesn't provide happiness to people, which is why they are killing themselves, right, through addictions of different kind. And then you have Rakshasi. We don't talk about it. Rakshasi is another way of civilization or another kind of civilization. We only want to acquire, you know, in, in an Asuric civilization, there are laws, and, uh, and so you are protected. In the US, we were last week, uh, my family, my, my, my wife and children and their families, we went to a resort in South Carolina um, uh, for a week. And um, they were, we, we never locked ourselves because we, it was an Airbnb. We walked in, there was no lock. And so everything was open all the time. And people said everything is safe because people are afraid of the law or they respect the law. Not in all places in America anymore, sadly. <laughs> You know, there's so many homeless people. LA has 70,000 homeless people. 
and you know some of them are desperate they can do various things but by and large there are lots of places so uh, so you uh, are um, you are then um, i'm sorry i lost the thread of my argument what was the the rakshasic uh, yeah rakshasi yeah. so yeah. the rakshasi is where you want to acquire and you there are no laws and there are certain societies they just abduct women or or kill people uh, with impunity it's happening even in india that is all rakshasi thing and that cannot uh, should not be allowed now any human being can become a rakshas you know that's that's the whole idea because within us is also this desire to acquire and that's where you need a balance you know there is this famous uh, uh, line in uh, i think it's in i don't know chandogya or brihad aranyak upanishad uh, where um, uh, it's uh, called da 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 which uh, uh, which uh, uh, t s elliot used uh, what the thunder said uh, it's in his the wasteland for which he won the nobel prize in fact he took almost the entire thing uh, from uh, the upanishad and uh, the 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 whole thing is uh, the devas and uh, the devas and the asuras and the manavas go to uh, go to prajapati and uh, they say what's the meaning of life what is the what is this reality all about and he says da da and he says why don't you reflect on it and uh, and so they go away and then they think about it and then the devas uh, come back and uh, and or or he tells them they come back separately uh, then he says da means uh, damyat which means to control dam means to control he says you know the devas the senses can also lose control you know uh, let's say the visual sense we can lose control in, to the extent that we have the internet we can be watching movies night and day we must control the senses the devas need control devas are the senses they need control so damyat right then he the asuras come and he tells the asuras da means daya you know this is what the asuras do or the rakshasas do because the rakshasas are generally aligned to the asuras daya because you can be cruel and then the manavas come to him and da for and this is of course what the thunder is doing you know when there is thunder thunder claps da 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 the manavas says uh, he says danam that give charity because we are all the same share compassion so that is what dan is so these are different ways of re relating to reality uh, the daivik the asuric and the manavik but there is also the rakshasic which is only about acquisition right so so today society seems to be more and more rakshasic in various parts of the world that's what we are observing isn't it well yes and i think these tendencies are always there even in india you had you know you read the puranas or you read the ramayana or the mahabharat and there were all these elements out there and they were the rakshasas also and and they and and the heroes the veer had to fight 
had to prove himself. You know, you went to, into the Aranya, you went to the forest and killed the Rakshasas. Then you came back. You had to prove yourself. There has got to be that Samudra Manthan within each because the Asuras and the Rakshasas and the uh, Devas, but broadly, Asuras and the Devas are within each one of us. And you cannot just be because if you're just being, you just leave a child alone. Uh, it's like leaving a mine, uh, a, a mountain which has gold and silver in it, just like that, right? You must go and mine the gold and silver. So you must do that manthan within. And that's what culture and education and training of each individual must be. And, uh, and, and so uh, there's got to be that uh, tapas, and this is also called tapas. There's that fire. That's where speech and agni once again comes in. What is the idea of this sacred ritual, the fire ritual? It's just to tell you at one level that just like through speech, we are invoking uh, this process of separating you know one from the other because that's what the speech has the power of speech gives us discrimination you know and likewise fire uh, produces light and light makes us see things for what they are but there's also uh, there's also effort required which is what tap is or tapas is right um, and and um, and that's why uh, if uh, consciousness is one and it has different forms. You know, Shiva has five faces, uh, as you know. And um, one of those faces is Rudra, which is where Rudra is from uh, the, the, uh, the root, uh, Rud, which means to cry, which makes you cry, uh, because that's the, uh, the, the heat part of it. But Shiva is more auspicious, right? Or Shiva in Elephanta Caves, is shown with three faces there. The right is the Rudra face, which is sometimes shown as a animal, as a beast. And then the middle is uh, what is called Sad, uh, it's called Sadyojat. Uh, no, no, no. It's called um, I, I forget the name. And the left is Parvati. It's the or the the middle one is the auspicious one, Shiva, as as we have. And the Parvati is also called Vamadev, which is the auspicious one. So there are different aspects to consciousness and and the dance of shiva even thoughts they arise and then then there is uh, one side to it which where you must go and tear down what you thought it was to be reborn right that is the rudra part the radra part and then ultimately and then you then you have light the fifth face of shiva you have four faces and the fifth face of shiva is ishana which is that that of grace which is where you connect to it uh, in, in, a, in a vital way, in, a, in an epiphany, which is where, where that, that central idea of that creative thought comes to you from nowhere. That is through Isham. So if we say that we are all Shiva, Shivoham, does it mean that we also have these five aspects? Of ourselves? course. You know, we are not Shiva all the time. We are Shiva only when we have done that effort. Mm -hmm. Because normally we again become either Manavas, right? And we want to hold on. 
manavas are enjoined to give dan but they don't want to you know as that amazing amazing um dialogue uh, or story in uh, in kathopanishad in fact my own journey in many ways it was that story in kathopanishad as in my teens i came across it and it was electrifying uh, the story as we know is that um, uh, there's a uh, certain ritual being done and uh, nachiketa is the boy and the father is doing uh, vajashavas he's doing this ritual in the ritual you have you have to give uh, dhanam to the various participants but all of us are also human we are supposed to give dhan but we don't want to so what do we do we just go through the motions we give all the useless calves right is clear supposed to give a certain number of calves to the people who were who had officiated at the ritual so he is giving useful useless animals or old animals so the boy says he tells the father He's so upset at his father because he loves his father. He looks up to him, you know, as his ideal. He says, "Who are you going to give me to?" The father is upset, but he ignores him, as fathers must often do. Then he says it again. The father ignores him. The third time, he says, "Who are you going to give me to?" You know, he's mocking his father. So father says, "I give you to Yama. I give you to death." And then Nachiketa travels to Yama, and then there's the whole story. And Yama is the greatest teacher. You know, within us is also Yama. Yama, death, right? There is one form of Shiva, Mahakal. Kal is also death. You know, we have space and time. Time is death. So the greatest teacher is Mahakal. You know, you go to Ujjain, for example. That is Mahakaleshwar. Just imagine the extraordinary subtlety at so many different levels. You know, one can go on for days and days to talk of all of these things. And what saddens me is that we have not created institutions in the last 75 years to communicate it to the entire generations we have separated excepting for some fortunate families where their parents or grandparents taught them but you know who are the people who really know this knowledge intuitively the most in india who kept india alive all these centuries are our mothers and grandmothers truly they may not know how to say it but they truly have a sense of it if india has been saved it's been saved by our mothers and grandmothers truly believe in it right so all, all of this knowledge all of the these traditions they're dying out and the thing is what we see is let, let's take yoga for instance yoga is a very ancient tradition it's being appropriated in the west right now and it's being transmuted in all kinds of strange forms we have uh, drunk yoga and hot yoga and goat yoga god knows what why doesn't india create institutions like uh for instance let's take the 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 martial art of kung fu the uh, authority on what is and what is not kung fu is the shaolin temple in china so why can't india have a yoga standards institute or something like that isn't it time for india to show some leadership and develop these things in order to preserve and uh, protect its heritage well the government can't do it uh, people have to do it and india pe- indian people are very poor for many years after independence you know one must yeah. also acknowledge that but now that's not the case at all indians are very wealthy indians have to do it i think part of the problem in india for the last many years is that we expect the government to change things we have to 
sees the flow of events ourselves. Uh, and of course, there are tremendous obstacles. You know, just this whole question of uh, which has dogged uh, Indian politics for some time uh, is control of temples. Why aren't we even allowed to run our own temples? So, well, mm. the politics has to change. Indians have to rise and say that no, enough is enough. We don't want it to be this way. So now, uh, talking of yoga, uh, the fact that only the asanas are being emphasized uh, mm -hmm. doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, people who go into the asanas, uh, any thoughtful person in the West or anywhere else, when he goes, uh, he or she goes into the asanas, at some point, they also want to know about the yoga sutras. Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And then we know that asanas are only at the third charan, third level. There's so many other levels. So they do want to explore that. So asanas is just a doorway. And people are doing hot yoga or this or that. That doesn't really matter. You know, there are people who, they will do those things. So then they do Yoga Sutra. And then what is the other great text of yoga, which is only about yoga, is the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is the whole sar, the essence of all the Upanishads. Most, you know, so subtle, one can spend one's whole lifetime doing uh, the Bhagavad Gita. So people do go to the Bhagavad Gita also. And then this is all of, you know, wisdom of related to reality and to our being is what the Vedas are all about. And, and yoga, what is yoga really? Yoga is lived Sanatan Dharma. You know, the other is analysis. The other darshanas are analysis. You can do Tarka or Nyaya or uh, Vaisheshika if you are so inclined, right? Or Vedanta or Mimansa, right? Um, or, or Sankhya. But really, what lived Sanatan Dharma is yoga. So yoga is Hinduism. Now, of course, we know that politically that becomes a problem. And sometimes we say that yoga is not Hinduism or some people have done that. But that's that's ridiculous. That's not true at all. Yoga is Hinduism. Lived Hinduism is yoga. How every, every individual, every human being is to live in a dharmic way or let's say in a wise way. Uh, not to use a Sanskrit word here, in a meaningful way, which leads to self-knowledge, that is yoga. And it's for all human beings. Sanatan Dharma is the way for all human beings. And people are recognizing this even in Islamic countries, even in Saudi Arabia, where there was a yoga festival just last month in Jeddah or somewhere, right? There are many women who are doing it and people are letting the children do it. The only country where there is violent opposition to all of this is Pakistan. Mm. Uh, because, you know, they are, they, the whole country was um, evolved, uh, you know, that's a politically, we, that's, a, that's another story. Let's, let's not get into that at all. But even there, I'm sure people do. Everybody wants knowledge. Everybody wants the sun, the light of the sun. And uh, it's not discriminatory at all. This is for anyone. We're not saying that you've got to do this, you've got to pay homage to this or that. Well, here is wisdom and it's 
for everybody to receive. Now, what uh, the racists or European racists and their Indian followers have done, they said, no, uh, this was done through Sanskrit. And you had these evil Brahmins who kept it only to themselves. So Sanskrit is hateful. And uh, so you should not be doing it. So in India, if there is opposition, it's in this strange group of people who, for various reasons, uh, control the media or entertainment um, and, and a lot of other people who, you know, who are in influential positions. So India has to awaken first. If India awakens, that process is underway, one can see. The rest of the world is looking, truly looking up to India because, you know, you have this, you have this whole tradition. They know it. Now, everybody in every country, any thoughtful person does make an attempt to find out what it is. Uh, and a lot of people in the West uh, know about the Upanishads. Almost everybody in uh, American schools is at least told about Upanishads. So there's also a lot of negative stuff controlled by 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 the left in the academia but people have learned especially because there is also more you know authoritative presentations of this coming through the social media etc so people do any thoughtful person does make an attempt to find out what the what the facts are so people do want the truth and this is what it is atman in in a word it's this knowledge of the Atma. Atma Vidya is what Veda is. And uh, uh, having learned about the Sharir, the body, uh, and found that, well, we really have no control. You know, pandemic has terrified people so much. There are some people who have not even left their home for two years because they're holding on to their body as if the body was forever. This Atma Vidya gives you comfort. It tells you that, look, you are actually immortal. You know, that's what the Veda is in one word. Every human being is immortal. The inner self is immortal. And so don't be afraid. The body is just, you know, a dress that you wear, as, the, as Krishna says. And, and we are all equal. Every human being is equal. All this nonsense that people are told uh, in Indian textbooks about this caste and that caste, or this jati or that jati, everybody is equal. Everybody is equal. So you said that yoga is a lived dharma, lived sanatan dharma. But there are lots of different paths in yoga. There is Raji yoga, there is Kriya yoga, there is Bhakti yoga, there is uh, various other forms. So what do these paths, what, what directions do these paths take you on? And which one is the best out of all of these? That depends how does one decide, decide that? They are all equal. That depends on your temperament. They are all different paths to the same inner journey to the inner sun. The same, there are different paths, which is what Krishna says. You know, you can use one path, Raja Yoga, Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, this or that. D uh, so depending on, on your uh, temperament, and our temperaments are different. As we know, anybody who's got siblings, they will realize that even though they were probably brought up the same way by the parents, but siblings turn out to be very different. Maybe sometimes not, but often they're very, very different. So we do come, you know, our... Sukshma Sharif, Karan Sharif that we come up with. And then, uh, so depending upon what our temperament is, uh, we do one or the other. 
and that's perfectly fine that's what gives variety and beauty and and that makes it chitra you know the 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 wonderful um, uh, forms society takes right because if everybody was the same then then uh, things would be boring so uh, so this is this is the part of the leela of reality uh, and uh, and and so all paths are the same so it's not it's not that uh, uh, the sat that we are talking about ekam sat vipra bahuda vadanti right and uh, these are different paths so we are not these are all paths informed by yamas and niyamas they are formed by discipline they are formed informed by compassion by self knowledge right by uh, by uh, questioning of itself so we are not saying that you do anything and all things all things go and that's where we have made a mistake you know where india has gone wrong is to lose uh, the question of critical uh, the, the matter of critical thinking that now you say you do anything and anything goes and all things are equal all traditions are equal well this there certain traditions which could be harmful where people are doing harm to others no all traditions are equal if people have the same ethical ground which is where yamas and niyamas come in and then everybody is equal it doesn't really matter how they worship and who they worship but we do must insist at least in educating people children that ethical foundation is fundamental and ethical foundation also requires that you shouldn't uh, want to dominate others you know people why have so many european scholars gone wrong because of racism and racism is counter to ethical preparation you cannot believe that you are superior to somebody the moment you believe that you are gone and then a lot of the stuff that you do and you see that in many of the books that i read and one laughs at the kind of stuff that people are spending their lifetimes doing they're so totally wrong right from the very foundation one of the presuppositions in uh, western thought occidental thought seems to be that their way is superior that's the inherent assumption that they make that our way is superior our way of thinking is superior our philosophy is superior our way of governing ourselves democracy they call it is superior that seems to color all of their thought all of their scholarly output implicitly do you do you think that is a that is the case well uh, a lot of uh, western thought related to society is governed by aristotelian logic or materialistic logic right and in materialistic logic you're talking of things and you're talking of um, you know use of uh, uh, use of logical categories to derive um, certain consequences right given certain things and 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 that's perfectly fine because as as uh, i uh, also admitted that the working of the mind is governed by uh, by materiality uh, material uh, description so we must have uh, we must have logic and clearly nyaya is foundation of society everywhere but i think the 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 best in the west do recognize that you have to bring in new categories there's also a lot of churning in the west of different kinds now 
there is control in the academia, but that always happens. And then what you need to do for that is for a new generation, as uh, Planck famously said, you know, the opposition to a thought doesn't uh, uh, die. It dies with a generation. The old people die, and then the new generation comes is inculcated in new thought. So I think that's where what has happened is not that there is uh, 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 that people in the West don't want to be connected to it because many are. Uh, we in India don't have enough, as I said earlier, interlocutors who know their own thought and speak about it, speak of it effectively, because you can't go out and talk down. There are some who talk down, and you can't do that. It will speak on an equal-to-equal -equal basis. You go and do that, people will embrace you or connect with you. And, and, and because people are right now totally lost in the West. You know, this pandemic has terrified people so much. Um, uh, look at uh, the whole of Canada is uh, shut down by the trucker strike. Uh, and what they are saying is, give us our freedoms back. You know, it's very easy for any uh, government to take your freedoms away and then feel quite comfortable holding on to all of that. And people must fight that. So I personally am quite uh, sympathetic um, uh, to what the truckers are asking for. And, and so I think, uh, to, to come back to your question, uh, uh, there is uh, sympathy for, or, or there is a desire to go beyond um, the crisis that they face. And they do face a crisis, as we know, in medicine. You know, 80, 90% of uh, medical research cannot be replicated. There's a <laughs> crisis in cosmology. You know, you have to talk about 96% of dark matter and dark energy. Where is it? It's not to be found anywhere at all. So there is a crisis of physics, psychology. Where is the self, the mind? What are we doing? How does creativity occur? West is facing a huge crisis. At this crisis, just as in the last crisis in the 1900s or prior to that, 1800s, it was thought from India, uh, which transformed you know, the revolution, the, the French uh, enlightenment. Uh, it was thought from the East. And then uh, 1900s, it was the bringing of the subject, the experimenter in physics, right? Or language, you know, uh, Ashtadhyayi Panani had great influence on semiotics, dissociure, all of sociology, all these modern subjects arose because uh, in the French Academy, they realized that here were these scholars in India, in their Shastras, they had even thought about a science of gesture and music, you know, as in Natya Shastra or Bharat, right? So you had all of this and all of these uh, areas developed. And then you had uh, quantum mechanics and the subject came much more central after um, relativity. In relativity, it was to a certain extent, quantum mechanics even more. And I think what is required now is a further bringing in of the subject, of consciousness. And I think that will be a revolutionary new advance. So I think the world is quite ready, not just from the perspective of society, be that that is certainly an important element, but also from the perspective of ontology itself, you know, nature of reality and epistemology. How do we investigate this reality. Indeed. So you make very good points. We 
don't really understand the world that we live in 96% of the universe is dark it's either dark, dark matter or dark energy if we look at our genome we have mapped out the genome but about 95% of that is not understood at all they call it the dark matter of the dna and again there's the question of consciousness we don't quite understand what quantum mechanics is telling us there are so many different interpretations but there's no consensus of on what it actually is telling us so there is so much we don't know so how do you think indian thought indian traditions indian philosophical traditions can help unravel these mysteries because there is a great deal of wisdom in in our ancient traditions is there something it can do to help us understand these matters better of course uh, you know uh, for example you know just just one small matter uh, related to the observer and the observed uh, mm-hmm. how does that collapse take place or how does consciousness interact with physical reality if there are two different things there are two different substances right consciousness is not a substance but let's call it you know a different category how if they are different how can they interact because matter can only interact with matter right it's simple simple thing so so how do we observe reality and there was a discussion of this in vedanta centuries ago uh, and they said through drishti uh, srishti is made so it's not that shiva or vishnu or devi um, at at creation at srishti they are creating you know they are creating assembling mass or this or that no no they are not doing that all the matter stuff is governed by laws that's what the understanding is everything is by laws evolution everything is by laws but the evolution is given directionality through drishti so this is called drishti srishti vad right and now uh, george sudarshan since his name came up in the 1970s he and his uh, student wrote a paper uh and they called it the quantum zeno effect where they explained how by observation alone you can steer the state of a quantum mechanical system first of all they showed how you can freeze it and the mathematics is very straightforward even i've written a paper on it mathematics is very if you keep on observing a system its evolution will stop because normally the evolution is deterministic given by the schrodinger equation right but if you keep on looking at it it will freeze but if you look at it in a particular way you can even steer it so that is rishi srishti vat and one's not surprised that uh, george sudarshan got it because he was very deep into vedanta he was a good friend of mine we met many many times very very deep into vedanta and uh, he was also very interested in uh, yogavasishta which is one of the greatest books ever written in the whole world in my view hmm. yogavasishta is the greatest novel that has ever been written if you want to look at it as a novel it's a huge book 24000 shlokas there are lots of wonderful translations swami venkateshananda you can view it as a novel but you can also view it as the deepest uh a deepest description uh or discussion of vedanta the deepest in terms of stories so it's true stories because you know the whole idea uh, in indian um aesthetics is that don't teach down you know a lot of western education is teaching down and people tune out because they're bored you know being told this or that and then this course is over and you've forgotten what you've been told in the indian aesthetics or indian shiksha you are taught 
indirectly through dhvani, through arts, through the 64 colors, through dance, through performance. And this is why Indian knowledge, Indian understanding, deepest understanding has been preserved by women because they were into color. Because the men were generally, you know, women are smarter than men, as you and I know. <laughs> men were doing things, they had to work out, you know, um, they, were, they, they had a boss or somebody working, they were working for, they had to make money. But it's the women who were really thinking deeply about all of these things. And they preserved it. And, uh, and that's how it's come to us. But in any event, Drishti through Drishti, indirectly, they taught us, the children, indirectly. Not necessarily, uh, this is a theory. This is what Vedanta says. This is what yoga says. Through their action, through the way these stories were told, Yoga Vasishta or even Mahabharata, Ramayana, these are all stories, right? And through these stories, the resonance, the deep understanding is communicated. Because when you're listening to a story, you're open. When a teacher gives you a mathematical theorem, your mind is closed because you're because then it is something oppressive. So the method of education is fantastic. And uh, if nothing, what we should do is to tell people about Yoga Vasishta and uh, just read it. It's a story. Read it as a story. Oh, and, and Mahabharata did that. You know, if you look at how is India awakening, maybe it started awakening in the 1970s and 80s when Ramayana and Mahabharata were shown on TV. That was the ink, the, the, the first the kindling of the fire. And slowly it's taking force. And sometimes I think that maybe outside India itself, everywhere, People are looking to it. The, the, the only opposition, the greatest opposition now we have in, we have in South Asia departments, uh, you know, Sepoy academics, and perhaps even in Sanskrit departments in the West, because they are, you know, at the service of uh, these departments. The, the strange thing I see is that we have all these wealthy people in India who have a lot of money, millionaires, multimillionaires, billionaires. They want to donate money to these western departments and these western chairs of Indology and Sanskrit and that's the same money could be used to to further Indian research in India itself from from a proper perspective so why do you think this attitude is there they truly want to help they want mm -hmm. to help they know in their being they know all this you know everybody in India India is an amazing place Bharat is an amazing place uh, there's something in the atmosphere uh, so they know it, but they think or they have made this calculation that, look, right now, political power is in the West. So let's also do something in Western universities to have help people be more sympathetic. And perhaps they will introduce some courses. You know, they're trusting the judgment of good people. And there are lots of wonderful people in the West who do want to do the best uh, for uh, the tradition also. I think what is missing is... Uh, you know, just like uh, Madan Mohan Malviya at his time, about 100 years ago, went uh, around the country and when India was poor and he gathered funds and created uh, uh, BHU, I think we just need 
these people, uh, the uh, captains of Indian industry, who are extremely wealthy now by world standards, they haven't, they're not aware of this, this side of the story. So somebody has to connect. And they are, they do want to help. If they heard this side of the story, that this is what India truly is, they sense it intuitively. But they don't know the story in its directness. That and and um, and they probably think that the only way it could be done is build a temple, uh, and and that's what's being done. But really, temple is only hardware. What is powerful is the software that is the knowledge base. Uh, we we need to create institutions. So I think there's only one small step missing: interlocutors who go and make personal contact and say that this is how we need to create it. I think there is a great groundswell in India that wants to do it, but perhaps there's one or two cogs in the wheel which are missing. And once that is done, we have these institutions or something that is created and not in a sectarian way. We are talking of universal knowledge for everybody. Uh, once that's done, I think right now, as, as we know, American universities are dying. You know, education is so expensive, $60,000, $100,000 a year. And what they are being told, these are stories which they can read for free off Google, right? And not Google, yes. because, you know, sadly, Google, uh, I noticed uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, because of this current atmosphere of censorship, which is being taken off or put on the 10th or 20th page. But you can use DuckDuckGo. And you'll see uh, a much, you know, much easier way to get hold of this information. So people can get all this information for free, for which their their parents and a lot of middle class American parents are not rich. They're barely making their ends meet. So people are looking for new alternatives, new ways of education, and maybe you know your your channel and other channels like this could be one element to new university, you know, not the old brick and mortar university, new kind of a university, uh, which will then change the world. It's already changing it, but will be a fundamental thing. And I think these captains of industry, some industries in India will play a very important role. They are waiting, you know, they, they, they say that every teacher, every guru, great guru is looking for his great disciple, you know, like Ramakrishna was waiting for Vivekananda. And every disciple is looking true. If you are truly on the path of knowledge, the guru will arrive. So I think India is at that threshold. There are the people with the money and there are those who probably who know what's to be done. And when that meeting that Samavai takes place, as Kanada says, then wonderful things will happen. Right. So currently it's like happening haphazardly. It's all decentralized. People going in different directions. What we need is cohesion and direction. And you talk about interlocutors. So who, what kind of person in your opinion would be a good interlocutor? Somebody with a lot of knowledge of our traditions and all that and someone who is able to communicate that well? Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, we have interlocutors, for example, yoga teachers in all mm -hmm. European countries. Right now, they are doing it maybe at the asanas level. They're doing it at the ground level. You have to get people into the asanas. You have to also tell them about the yamas, the niyamas, and then they will hopefully 
in the next 10, 20, 30 years to it. But no, I think what you're talking about is, or we are talking about is interlocutors who are, who are able to make a fundamental change because India needs uh, changing, you know, the next generation. Why are we not telling them all this good news? This good news about their own past for Atma Vishwas. Truly, without Ashma, with Atma Vishwas, you know, Aham Brahmasmi was a was a Mahavakya. Why was this given? Uh, not to believe that I'm the entire cosmos. That is stupid. The Brahman, the Atman, our Atman, every human being's Atman has the capacity to obtain all knowledge, which is true, which is empowering. Why don't we give this this good share of Atma Vishwas to every child? Uh, and but we have, we have to fight the enemies which are very strongly established who would say no anything to do with this wisdom is regressive we must cut it down uh, this uh, they call it all kinds of names uh, this is patriarchy of one kind or the other so there are the rakshasas and the asuras are always there just look at this struggle that Rama and Lakshman and Sita had to do had to endure, or the Pandavas. These are these are stories uh, which mysteriously or amazingly capture the struggle that we must go through. Uh, beautiful rewards don't come without struggle. And uh, look at what uh, you know Rama himself had to do in a forest without any resources or what the Pandavas had to do. So we, they, but that fight itself is a great reward. So we must fight as hard as we can and do our best to get connected to people who can provide us the resources. Because for example, your channel or other channels, if they can be scaled up and somehow they can be tied to some other ways of certification of knowledge or this could be knowledge based which is tied in some other way, because these old degrees are going to be worthless if there are no jobs, whether you have a PhD or, an, or a B.Tech. Or, but if they are given certain certifications, and maybe if alliances could be formed with certain temples, temples themselves must recreate themselves. And probably American temples, which are free, and America is beautiful and great temples also now, they are free if they are able, and they do have education, but right now at a lower level on Sundays, they have schools and they have thousands of students across the US. But if now they go into other subjects and go to higher levels where they are able to provide education, which prepares these interlocutors, because we need thousands of these interlocutors. Uh, to spread this word and to tell others that, look, don't be afraid. We are not come to harm you. This is knowledge that anybody can embrace. This is not against the West also. It's universal knowledge. You know, I think this is where some people become very defensive, that here we are saying this is somehow Hindu supremacy. This should be. This is, we're not talking of supremacy of one kind or the other. This is universal knowledge. This belongs to humankind. I'm not, I won't even say mankind, say humankind, because mankind is not, it's a word which has fallen out of favor. It's the image that's been created that Hinduism is supremacist. The, the, the Hinduism versus Hindutva dichotomy, then they have created this term Brahminism, which is another way of, another ploy of splitting Hinduism from the middle. 
So that's what creates this impression in the West that Hinduism is somehow a supremacist kind of uh, ideology, belief system, whatever. And that's what I think we need to fight with, with truth. And for that, we need good interlocutors, right? Oh, absolutely. And stress that, look, everybody's the same. For example, you know, I just wrote a column the other day on Medium on um, Raja Bhoj, Bhoj Paramar. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he, I said, is the greatest, history's greatest scholar king. He wrote 84 books. He's not a Brahmin. You know, if you look at it from that perspective, here is this. This whole thing, anybody who was for two generations into um, Sanskrit, some people said we are Brahmins, right? So this is not that there is not bloodlines. What is this stupidity which uh, academics in India are uh, repeating just because they've been mentioned by uh, European scholars who didn't have any understanding at all? You have, uh, uh, for example, in uh, Champa, in Vietnam, you have the Cham people for the Champa, you know, the, the great Champa empire, the ones who are not converted to Islam, but 80% or 85% are converted to Islam, 15% heaven. And these call themselves Brahmins, they call themselves Balamans. They, they look like Vietnamese. There, there are no bloodlines to any of this. I'm shocked at the stupidity that even Indian academics uh, display. For example, there was. Uh, somebody wrote a paper on Kerala astronomy and uh, one of the um, scholars in uh, Kerala astronomy, which is a great chapter in history of world astronomy, was somebody called Varier. Now, Varier is not formally a Brahmin. So they said, this guy wrote, this is the first example of a non-Brahmin doing this kind of work. This is total stupidity. There's no such stuff at all. People, the jatis were all fluid. And people remembered, of course, there's some, there's that episode in one of the Upanishads also where this boy is asked, what uh, varna are you or what jati you are? And he says, uh, one of the greatest of the rishis, and he says, when my mother was young, when she had relations with many, so I don't know who my father is. And then this guy says, well, since you're speaking the truth, that means you're a Brahmin, right? So Brahmin, and every Purush, you know, Purusha Sukta, that Purush became, the head became Brahman, etc., etc. But every human being has Purush within him or her. So every human being has all these four Varnas within them, which get projected depending upon what you're doing. So all of this is asinine totally asinine you know i uh, ac- academia is not the place where you necessarily see light there are people stuck in the darkness of their silos and uh, and that's the reason why there's so little in many ways that is emerged by way of understanding you look at the whole uh, analysis of the rig veda right from max muller down and they still haven't seen the light you, you know you look at the most more recent translations it's the same old stuff. They don't get it. They don't get it. 
So what's happening is that academia, there is a certain kind of stranglehold on academia. It's always left-oriented, Marxism-oriented, and they have a certain way of looking or, or, or interpreting and portraying our traditions. And unfortunately, every single child in the country, in India, has to go through this system for 15-20 years. And at the end, they come out brainwashed. So that is what this country is, is laboring under. And I see hope now because... Today, in the 21st century, in the 2020s, things are changing. This academic system is soon going to become irrelevant, obsolete, because the world is changing. The kind of jobs that are needed are, are evolving, and the degrees won't matter very soon. They'll all become irrelevant, and your skill your skill set will matter. So I think that is that gives me hope that things will change, and people will no longer be under that, that, much, of an influ, that much of influence from... Uh, from this ideology that is uh, this this ideological brainwashing that's happening so i think that's happening worldwide too and hopefully we will see some change i totally agree i totally agree i think this is one of those uh, inflection points as many people in the uh, in the ai industry say that mm -hmm. machines will take over uh, they're not take over they will not be conscious in my view but they will be doing a lot of stuff and there won't be jobs. That is certainly true. And population will start to go down. People will look more for meaning. And that's what the change that is taking place that you mentioned in the 21st century. Absolutely. Why? I think the, the pandemic has accelerated some of that uh, change. Oh, why do you think the population will go down? Population, as we see, uh, families are intuiting that their children mm. won't have jobs. Mm. I see so many people in their 30s and 40s, people who are even married, they don't have children or maybe at most have one or two. This will, as jobs disappear uh, and as there's more of connectivity, entertainment, for a variety of reasons, there are no jobs. Societies, how will they support their children? And right now they're sending, let's say, from Middle East, a lot of people are going to Europe. But in Europe itself, to raise a child itself is so expensive. I can tell you about the US. Uh, a nanny, um, uh, because help is so expensive, a nanny could make uh, easily $70,000 a year when an English professor can make uh, at a college probably makes only 50 or 60K, $60,000. So I see. To, to raise children is getting expensive. So all these practical considerations, I think. And I believe there was a story the other day that uh, India has now just reached uh, the, the, the fertility rate has dropped, that it's now at replacement level. It will still keep on going up for, for maybe 20, 30 years, but then it will start declining. And in many other countries like Japan, it's declining. Eastern Europe is declining very rapidly. Russia, China, uh, US is only the immigration and Europe is also declining. The native Europeans are declining in every country. And the immigrants also will, maybe after one generation, their fertility will also go down. Because then in many ways, you know, they may hold on to certain uh, cultural practices from their native lands, but in many other ways, they'll also adopt European ways. So AI, you say, will not become conscious, but it could still have a very uh, powerful uh, effect on society because it's going to be a force multiplier like any other tool. It's going to empower the people who control it. 
do you see ai as a long term bad thing as a harmful thing for humanity i i totally agree with you ai now, machines will not be conscious but they will be everywhere they because most of what humans do is um, procedure related and whatever is procedure related like clerks do or even teaching you don't need professors at every place you can have using technology there's a force multiplication right scale multiplication so or cars will be self driven or to a great extent or and everywhere so given that uh, uh, there are some people who say that instead of 10 billion people 8 billion people the whole world will be able to support uh, in useful tasks maybe 1 billion or even less so population must go down uh, and and so machines will will uh, perhaps be helpful in reducing the drudgery of work and make it possible for people to be more creative and that's what would open up maybe new professions where people would learn to be more in touch with the atman within which they have shrouded through cultural practices or through habits uh into they put a shroud around it so they would want to be connected and so maybe this is what every society goes through various phases and maybe this is from kali yuga to satya yuga maybe that's where we will we will have a golden age uh, when people are awake i think aitreya brahman states uh, at one place that when people are asleep uh, that is when it's kali yuga like india has been asleep for a long time that's kali yuga when they sit up that is dwapar when they stand that is treta and when they walk that is satya yuga when they want to be when they take charge that is satya yuga or krita yuga so and then it says charai veti charai veti that's why walk walk so so maybe that's the phase that we are in because we must create machines we can't ban machines because they do reduce drudgery that is walking do whatever is required for atman to be illuminated in every human being's mind so we want everybody to be able to get the most of what this beautiful reality has to offer and and we have explored the outer world but now and of course people like elon musk are also trying to go to the mars and so on but uh, but now the greatest mystery that there is is the inner world and that will be uh, unveiled or illuminated by the journey within which is as exciting actually much more exciting and that's where yoga comes in certain forms of yoga i mean you can do bhakti you can do whatever you do but you can also if you have that temperament through and and these are not easy journeys tantra is a very dangerous path so you can through tantra explore that inner cosmos as well only if you want to not everybody has to bhakti can be beautiful by itself are you hopeful for the long term future of humanity we seem to be headed towards a phase of some kind of chaos but are you hopeful for the long term future i think i am i'm opti- i'm an optimist but i think this optimism uh must be helped by 
uh, this udyam or effort on our part. On our part, people um, who are fortunate to have been connected to this wisdom, because this wisdom informs half of reality. You know, half of reality is the outer world. The other half of reality is the inner world, right? And we, fortunately, even if we did not learn it formally, even if we did not learn Sanskrit, right? But we learned it from our mothers and grandmothers. We have it. So we must do whatever it takes to take it to all corners. And not with a sense of superiority. It's not, not that at all. It's because ultimately every human being must get it on their own. Because you can only point the direction. We only helping in pointing the direction. Ultimately, the last, the step of Kaivalyam, as Patanjali's Yoga Sutra says, when you fly by yourself, right? That is the Kaivalya state. The Kaivalya because Kaival, only one, because there's only one consciousness. That Kaivalyam requires that effort on each individual's part. And then, you know, beautiful things happen. Once you have that state, you realize that commonality with every other human being. Every human being is equal. You know, in the West, they're looking at shades of skin. They're saying, well, this person, if you are, you know, very amazingly, and this, this tells you the hollowness of Western academia. Uh, uh, last year, Biden administration said, if you are uh, Indian, uh, Bangladeshi, or Pakistani, you'll have special help uh, with your business, you know, COVID, because of COVID things. But you're, if you're Afghani, then you won't. Why? They didn't say it. But why implicitly? Because Afghanis are a bit fairer than Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, or Indians and Sri Lankans. And then this law, somebody challenged it. This law was struck down by a judge, appeals court judge who was Indian. And just look at this. Indians are the wealthiest community in the U.S., wealthier than any other community. But these guys, these stupid young people from these Ivy League colleges, they are looking at the world only in terms of skin color. Once you have really understood the, 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 this, this whole wisdom tradition, you realize that skin color doesn't matter. We're all equal. We're all the same. It's the same Purush, the same Atman within each one of us. Of course, um, this whole question of you can talk about Jivatma and Paramatma. Perhaps that you, that's what you had what you had meant when you asked me about Atman earlier on. Jivatma is, of course, our experience of that Atma. That is what Jivatma is. But in reality, it's the same Shiva, Shivoham. And where does the law of karma come into all of this? The law of karma comes in because normal our normal state is the Pashu state because we are also Pashu. And as Pashu, uh, we are bound. What is a Pashu? A Pashu is one who is bound through Pasha. Pasha are the strings through our nature. So we are all bound. So we are all Pashu until such time that we obtain Moksha. That's when we become Shiva. Until such time that we recognize that we are Shiva. Right? So... Normally, as Pashu, everything is in a sequence. You have been hit by somebody, you want to hit somebody. So that's the karma thing. And so law of karma exists for all of us or to that aspect of us, which is Pashu. Because even if, even if you are 
you know, we are enlightened, uh, a lot of the living hours are in the Pashu state, right? Where we are guided by manners and expectations and conventions, right? So uh, the convention is that if somebody strikes you, you strike back. So that is a law of karma, right? But when we have moksha, because that's what moksha is, you know, when because India was in such horrible situation when people who didn't understand at all put it under their heel. So then all that we could look for, when, you, when the people were being abducted or killed with impunity, then people said, you have moksha only when you die. That's when you are liberated. But really, moksha is in this life. When you break this sequence, this chain of karma, which you can, the more you see yourself as Shiva, not pretend to see, not, you know, one can also pretend to see, truly see it in your heart, then you see it all come together and then you're free. How do you see yourself as Shiva? How do you do that? How do you achieve that? Well, that through your sadhana, whatever your sadhana, sadhana. is, you, through your sadhana, through the yoga path that you have chosen, and you will, through bhakti or through selfless service, through karma yoga, or through whatever your sadhana is, you will see it. You'll see that there is really no difference between you and somebody, somebody else. And it's that state. And, and, and then, as in Yoga Sutra, then you get all those siddhis. They come because they are there for everybody. Siddhis are there for everyone. It's, you know, uh, like that uh, story um, of uh, uh, story of the person who was given uh, by his father when he was dying. The father gave him, the son came to him. The father gave him this old coat. He says, please take care of it. And this, the father passed away. The son looked at his coat and he was disgusted. He says, this is so old. He's, but uh, he gave two coats to one son and the other son. The other son wondered. He says, well, maybe there's something to it. So he looked much more carefully and he saw that there were jewels which were sewn within the layers of the coat. So they, these jewels are for each one of us. But we must at least reach to it and grab it and if you grab it we'll see all those wonderful things so those wonderful things are there for each one every human being so how does one find or decide or determine which is the right path of yoga for for ourselves they say that you need to find a guru and the guru will show you the path but how do you know which guru is the right guru everybody is a guru these days how do you how do you find the right guru well <sighs> You, the greatest guru is also within you. You know, the Rig Veda says yeah. that there are two uh, suparna. There are these two birds within you. And what does that really mean? You have the mind. That is your momentary self, right? And it flits here and there. There are these vrittis. You're going from one thought to another, past and future. But then there is also behind that a more calm self, which is if you care to tie up with that, which is the Sakshi within you, which is who is the Shiva within you, right? The calm self. So the, a person has to make an attempt to find that calm space. From calm space comes 
a calmness of time. You know, that, that is what dhyan is. That is one. Now, of course, you got to do some udyam, and there are different things available at different places. For example, when I was growing up, um, I was growing up in Kashmir, um, there was no uh, place, uh, formal place to do yoga at that time in Kashmir at that time. But then, you know, at our home, we could do certain things. Now you have uh, yoga schools all over the world. And they they could also be uh, a place where you can only do asanas. And they can only go that far. Or the human guru that you meet, and you may meet more than one guru, may take you only that far. But ultimately... Uh, what you have to do is to create conditions so that, and your sakshi within you, the guru within you will tell you, hey, now do you need to switch your guru or not? Or have you found the guru for keeps? Like Vivekananda found the guru for keeps in Ramakrishna. Vivekananda was looking before that as well. So you got to look all around you and, you know, sometimes through yatra. yatra what was, why was yatra valued? Through yatra, you went on a journey which was not not that pleasant painful you know to wake up and in yatra people like that great yatra that is that takes place in maharashtra every year every year what is that pandhari yatra or whatever the great yatra that is done where you know people are walking for several days or in all places yatra means visiting any place right uh, or even nature you're doing climbing mountains you are just with by yourself and it's when by when you are by yourself that that ahankar which creates all kinds of problems for you either you think you're superior or you think you're inferior both of these states is what puts you in a puts you in a bind you know india's uh, india's tragedy was that indian leaders after 1947 because of all the stuff that they had in internalized in their upbringing, felt at that time that they were somehow inferior to the Europeans, to the English. So they're looking up without equal. You know, you you're not to see you're not to see yourself as superior. We are all equal. And then you're when you are climbing a mountain, at that time you realize that really you are all alone. That's when you are in touch with prakriti. Prakriti is your greatest teacher, right? The goddess, you have to be, you have to approach goddess with humility. I think that's where the problem is. Now, sometimes I know some people from very, um, from families that they're lucky that they had a lot of wise people in their families. But then these young people grew up with a sense of superiority. Hey, I'm, uh, and any sense of superiority leads to cessation of that flow. Now I'm using an Aurobindo word. You need to be a part of that flow. And nobody is superior. You have to really let go. Uh, you know, as Kena Upanishad says, he who thinks he knows, he knows not. The moment you think you are doing it, stop. You have to let go. And then the flow will take you. That is, learning to let go, the flow will take you to the Guru. And there are gurus waiting for, for the shishyans. That is true. That is being a true Sikh. You know, the, the word Sikh comes from shishya, as you know. So now there is political Sikhism. 
<laughs> to be a good Sikh, you have to be a good Shishya. I see. Very interesting. So who have been your gurus? Who have been the most, the largest influences in your life, in your journey, in, in discovering all this? Well, you know, my uh, my father, uh, he was orphaned. Uh, he lost his mother in 1918. He was six months old uh, in the Spanish flu pandemic. And then his father, who, who was in, a, in the police department, he was killed. He was on a some uh, operation, nabbing some bad people. So he's killed there. So he was he's very young. He was eight or nine um, or ten. He didn't have parents. So then he was brought up by his uncles, etc. And you know, in a joint family, things were very hard um, because you know there were so many. This within a family, there is this whole politics related to who has got more power and this and that. So finally, um, so he, he went through a very difficult childhood. Uh, and then he was raised by his older brother, who was teaching in Punjab. So with all this background, my father had a very strong spiritual bent. And he found a guru when he did his uh, professional training. And he was posted at this small town in Jammu. And there was this uh, wakil. He had taken rooms uh, at this wakil's place. And this wakil was a kind of a yogi. So he took his took him under his wing. And so my father did some of this. And then at the end of these two years, my father really wanted to become a sadhu or whatever, you know, a yogi or whatever. But then this wakil, his guru, told him that, no, no, go ahead, get married, have children, and this and that. So my father had had that experience. So in, in many ways, my father was my guru. So it's not that I actually went out and sought a guru, but then through my own sadhana and through through and I met a lot of famous gurus also, and you know friends uh, uh, like the great Gopi Krishna uh, or Swami Rama from Honesdale uh, and many others. Uh, but you know they've been like friends, or even uh, Dayanand Saraswati, uh, who is uh, who was. Um, Narendra Modi's Modiji's guru, uh, who has this great ashram in uh, New Jersey, Arshavidya Gurukulam. So I, I, uh, and then you know, actually, okay. So my father, as a as a as a guru, I can only name him because I haven't taken diksha from anybody. But I've done my, my sadhana in many different ways. And who are the thinkers, the writers who have influenced you, like? Is it like someone, someone like uh, Sri Aurobindo or uh, Ananda Kumaraswamy? Who else? Who else did you have as uh, significant influences? Well, um, I have read up on tremendous amount of literature from all over the world. Tremendous amount. Uh, I can't mm -hmm. even uh, go to the extent you know European, <laughs> Russian, German, French, English, American, a lot, a lot of Indian stuff as well, and Indian English as well. And when I was growing up, we had uh, Aurobindo's books because my father's guru uh, was in the Aurobindo tradition. Maybe he had, I don't now know the details because my father's passed on, but it's possible that he, and his name was Kalia, uh, uh, last name is Kalia. So he, uh, whether he had gone to Pondicherry, I don't know. So my father at home, we had. Aurobindo's books, and we also had the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, 
So Vivekananda also had a great influence. And then, you know, the Upanishads and all the texts and all the Kashmiri uh, mystic uh, poetry and Kashmir Shaivism is a kind of a living thing. All the stuff that we do, and my mother did, I was related to the various cycles associated with all of this. And uh, um, so, uh, so it was, you know, the whole uh, family which was focused on, on the mystery in different ways. Um, and, uh, and so I was part of that, but I was not, I was more of an observer. I would just keep on looking at, hey, what's going on? And, and, and use my own judgment as to, uh, you know, what something meant. Uh, and, and so right from, right from very early on, I've been, uh, and, and and yes, so all these books and uh, other books as well, uh, books by anybody that you can think of, uh, Gandhi and Nehru or um, other, Gopinath Kaviraj, the great uh, uh, scholar from uh, BHU, um, history books um, and books by Western scholars as well on India. Most most of the stuff that you have, so, so I've, I've read it. Or history of Indian art, Anand Kumar Swami certainly, or Heinrich Zimmer, who wrote also very well, uh, and he also got it. Uh, a lot of people have written on um, Indian art, where, because art is synthesis. You know, when you're only doing analysis, you don't get India. It's like blind six blind people and the elephant. You see it different ways. But when you analyze it, you have to open your eyes. That's why people like Kumaraswamy, he was also a historian of art. He got it. Or Stella Cranbridge, you know, her wonderful book, The Presence of Shiva, for example, or her book on history of the Hindu temple. So uh, historians of art have been much more perceptive and understanding than people who have just looked at texts uh, or historians of ritual, because in ritual also things come together. And my own study, my own discoveries that I've made of, um, uh, say, Vedic astronomy, were a consequence of my study of the Agni Chayan ritual, as described in the Shatpat Brahman, which people had not studied because uh, 100 years ago, uh, Western scholars like Keith said, uh, Brahmanas are all stupid rantings of crazy people. So Indian scholars did not read them for a hundred years. So my discovery was not that an amazing thing. It, they, those things had not been discovered because people had not opened the books. <laughs> That's what the problem in India is. Right, yes. Right, so let me ask you one final question and let's let me bring you back into quantum physics. So which interpretation of quantum mechanics makes the most sense to you? Because we have the Copenhagen interpretation, the many worlds interpretation, Bohmian mechanics, pilot wave theory, the von Neumann Wigner interpretation, which says consciousness causes collapse. So, which interpretation makes the most sense to you? I think it's still the uh, the, the orthodox Copenhagen interpretation, and I think uh, personally, as as from my papers as well, um, uh, and there are reasons which I can explain very quickly. Uh, quantum computers would probably not work. And I'll tell you why, because you have errors and how you protect those errors is that you take each qubit and convert that into a logical qubit, which means many qubits put together. 
And uh, so you introduce redundancy in each qubit. So it becomes, say, n qubits. So n qubits represent one qubit, which is perfectly fine, at least theoretically. And then you do the rest of the processing, right? And that processing, uh, certain errors can be protected, let's say up to 15, 20%, whatever that percentage is. But this process of going from one lone qubit to a logical qubit itself can produce errors. And there's no way you can correct it. In fact, this is the point I've made in recent papers. And therefore, quantum computers themselves will not be built. And likewise, in quantum cryptography, you still need a classical protocol for the two individuals to identify each other before you can do the BB84 protocol. Or you can use my protocol, uh, uh, which is quantum communication. Uh, Qubits exchange three, three ways. So since you still need a classical protocol for identification, therefore, why not use classical all the way through? Because this one is going to be more expensive. So, but but still, quantum cryptography can be done, and it's been implemented. But quantum computing has this problem related to uh, related to um, error correction. Now, uh, multi uh, many worlds interpretation, which is you know Hugh Everett and this whole idea that you have to look at um, uh, the wave function itself, uh, uh, the, the 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 many uh, the many elements of the wave function, because it's a superposition, as getting uh, associated when, when you measure it, when you collapse, when you collapse it, as uh, having different results in different universes which exist simultaneously. I think that's, from an Occam's razor, razor's point of view, that's too extravagant. So I think that's not gone very far. But sadly, that's been one of the driving uh, forces behind this idea of creating a quantum computer, which would be effective. Uh, so, but irrespective of what your interpretation is, I think the real problem, because we can, of course, load a quantum state on hardware and then process it, that is certainly true. But the problem of error, errors coming in at the very first stage where you're going from a qubit to a logical qubit cannot be solved. And therefore, uh, they will not be effective. Maybe you can do some toy, toy stuff on that. But having said that, the, um, the, the tremendous resources that have been invested in um, quantum computing in the last five, six years, because of this race between China and the US, um, uh, because the Chinese stand up and say that we have done this. So the um, Americans say, okay, now let's give you another $50 million or billion dollars and this and that. What that can do or that will do is put more energy into nanotechnology. You know, you're doing the physics of it may lead to other payoffs. So I think the significance of all this effort is in the many unknown payoffs that would come, which would have uh, implications for technology. And that is, of course, very important. You know, in fact, one can see one reason why the Chinese did very well in their rise in the last 20 years. They made some very good bets. They they put a lot of money in optics, for example. And a lot of optics that you buy, even in the US now, is supplied by, American, by, by Chinese vendors. 
while I think in India, they India put a lot of stuff in just computation or software. And uh, there, uh, that is harder because uh, in when it comes to hardware, optics, you know, you have so many devices that people are going to use, while software can be created by just a few people. And therefore, um, uh, it's harder to scale it up. But now that is happening for a variety of reasons, because Americans are pulling out some of their investment in China. And and, and so we, we now have a lot of uh, unicorns emerging in relation to, um, uh, you know, AI applied to different fields. So maybe we had to uh, be more patient in the payoff that uh, India has gotten. But certainly, you know, uh, all this will have an impact one way or the other, not quantum computers by themselves, but but uh, the many different ways that technology would have gained from uh, the investments. Yes, technologies have so many spin-offs. For oh, instance, yeah. the space race it produced so many spin-offs, and we are using all those technologies in our daily lives today. So right. certainly, that's always going to have all these downstream effects. That's going to uh, change society in, in a variety of ways. Right. Uh, let's let's end the conversation here. Thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. It went in all different directions. Thank you very much. A real pleasure to talk to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Abhijit. Really enjoyed it.